Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. I suspect that few people know much about the history of Africa beyond what happened as a result of the slave trade and European colonial rule. A new book from the University of California Press titled Great Kingdoms of Africa tells other stories about the kingdoms, dynasties, and city-states that have shaped cultures across the African continent for over 5,000 years of recorded history. It's a collection of essays written by leading historians, and I'm pleased that John Parker, who both edited and contributed essays to the book, joins us now. Welcome to our show. Thanks very much, Leonard. It's great to be here. Anatomically, modern humans emerge from what's now modern-day Ethiopia. The, the earliest fossil evidence of early modern humans appears in Africa around 300,000 years ago. How soon did they begin to establish tribes and kingdoms? Um, that's a very good question to start. The book is about kingdoms, not about tribes. Maybe we can talk a bit about what that word means later and the sort of connotations it carries. But the first kingdoms in Africa emerged in the Nile Valley. Many people would associate that with Egypt. Mm -hmm. But the first chapter in the book by the leading anthropologist, archaeologist David Wengrow makes a slightly different argument. He argues in this chapter that, in fact, the emergence of settled civilizations and kingdoms in the Nile Valley was more a dialogue between Egypt to the north and regions of present-day Sudan in the south. So he's shifting the focus a bit. And uh, the chapter, I think, um, reflects the rest of the book insofar as that it seeks to not just sort of regurgitate um, received wisdoms, but um, but offer new interpretations on this deep African past. So from about 5,000 years ago, we see all along the Nile Valley the first uh, first indications of uh, state building and kingship. And they became the Kushite kings? That's right. That's a general term for the region for, uh, uh, of Kush, uh, south of the first cataract in the, in the Nile, stretching down towards present-day Khartoum. And so the argument here is that these kingdoms were, were in a very complex and nuanced dialogue over time with, with the better-known uh, pharaonic Egyptian uh, civilizations to the north. Weren't some of uh, Egypt's earliest rulers going back to around 3000 BCE rather brutal? Weren't many retainers killed <laughs> when a monarch died? Yes. Um, early on, in the first couple of dynasties, that was the case. And uh, and uh, David Wengro writes, I think, very interestingly about that and compares it to other early examples of state building in China and South Asia, Europe, and in the Americas, where we also very early on see the ritual slaying of, mm. of what we could call human sacrifices, as the term's often glossed, to, to underpin uh, the power of, of of kingship that ended uh, after a few hundred years, and those sorts of um, those sorts of ritual killings um, uh, disappeared from Egypt. They did uh, emerge later on in Nubia to the south, but it does address a very important theme in the book, which is the the kinds of power that were used to reinforce kingship in Africa, but also in other parts of the world too. And violence and coercion was very much a part of that story, but it needs to be balanced out against other more pacific and more what we could call creative forms of, of royal power. So how similar were these monarchies to the ones that developed elsewhere in, in Europe, in Asia, the Americas, the various island nations? That's a that's a huge and very very good question, a very important one. And, I mean, and the book unique, does. Are they unique to the situation? Uh, I think all state building projects over time in all parts of the world, in some ways, are unique to the particular situation, to the sort of ecological environment in which they emerge, to the human uh, environment in which they take shape. Uh, and so, so states and kingdoms and the, the, the nature of kingship, uh, you know, is, is very much rooted in these local regional histories all over the world across time. Mm -hmm. However, it can also be said that 
Africa is not particularly sort of different or exotic or or unusual in this respect. There are many similarities in the way power works uh, between kingdoms in in all parts of the world. And another thing the book tries to do is sort of try to de-exoticize this notion of Africa as a as a as a place sort of beyond the mainstream of history, where unfortunately. Uh, it has been uh, left uh, in some ways and to bring it into a comparative perspective with other parts of the world. Well, it's a big continent and it's human history. There are many different kinds of peoples throughout it. Uh, The history is quite long. Uh, Shouldn't I assume there were many variations? Yes, absolutely right. And of course, one uh, one big... um, distinction we have to think about in African history is that between North Africa, that is north of the Sahara Desert, and Africa south of the desert, often referred to as, as sub-Saharan Africa, and the the, the differences in uh, across time there. And so we see in both regions, and indeed in the desert itself in, at different times, the emergence of of a variety, whole variety of, of forms of power and kingship um, in, in, in different parts of the continent. And the book tries to, to, um, to look across time at, at, at these different regional uh, examples. So looking at North Africa, West, East, Southern, and Central Africa to take sort of key or archetypal case studies of all those regions and think about how, how uh, royal power worked in them. Well, they also were, in time, were interacting with uh, the peoples of the east and and eventually of the north, whereas uh, the people of the south were pretty much isolated, weren't they? Um, traditionally speaking, that has been the view, but that's changing in uh, that's changed in recent decades as historians have done more work on connectivity across the Sahara Desert and uh, that what what's been what's been found is that the 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 ability of peoples to transcend the great barrier of the Sahara was actually greater than what has hitherto been thought so there were important lines of connectivity and indeed they played a part in the rise of the very famous succession of states and the on the southern edges of the Sahara and the Sahel region, um, first of all the the Kingdom of Ghana, and then succeeded by Mali and Songhai, which um, which uh, Romani Idrissa, one of the authors, writes about uh, very interestingly in one of the chapters of the book. So let's get down to basics. How were kings and queens made? How was how were monarchies forged in Africa, and how did that? Uh, did they operate? Was dynastic power maintained by consent or by coercion? Yeah, that that's an absolutely central theme in the book. Hard to answer in a nutshell because it did well, vary over moments. time and and across space. But it's an absolutely crucial uh, historical problem. And what I try to argue in the introduction to the book is is again looking at. Africa in a sort of comparative perspective is that we tend to take kings and queens for granted, but when you stop and think about them, they're rather odd people. What makes a king? What makes a king, a dynastic ruler, separate, different from ordinary people? How do they get to stand above society and order people and tell people what to do? It, it, and the more you think about that question, the, the trickier it is to answer. And the book does attempt to answer that and through its different case studies. And I think the the short answer is, is that it's a combination of consent and coercion. I think there's very few historical examples anywhere in the world where you can simply say uh, uh, any sort of state system is based just on one or the other. At different times, consent and or if you like, what we call in the book creative power, uh, has to be used in another times more coercive or what, what could be called instrumental power needs to be mobilized. And one of the things the book tries to do is to 
look at African kingdoms, you know, very seriously and not just sort of essentialize them and, you know, and, and say, well, they were great, wonderful things that have been sort of left out of the mainstream of European centered history, but to try to treat them with, with re- the, the seriousness and the nuance that, that, that they deserve, just like political power in any other part of the world. When we call them kingdoms, should I assume that, as in other parts of the world, the leaders tended to be men? Yes. uh, The overwhelming majority of leaders, uh, as in all parts of the world, were men. But Africa, like other parts of the world, also occasionally gave rise to some very powerful queens and so the sort of gender dynamics if you like of of um history it is important here and we can see that in the realm of popular culture um through for example the recent film uh the woman king which is is, is based on on um on dynamics in 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 west africa uh, in the early modern and modern period so um Women were important because also they brokered power. They may not have been on the throne, as it were, but in in some kingdoms, the Ashanti kingdom uh, of West Africa, which I write about uh, in the book, for example, women were of crucial importance because Ashanti in the broader Akan culture from which it emerged is a matrilineal culture in which succession and inheritance passes not through the male line, but through the female line. So this gave women an awful lot of power, including often very direct political power. So we see the emergence of the office of queen mother. And also in the example of Buganda in East Africa, we see kings often ruling in very close uh, collaboration with not necessarily their biological mothers, but office holders who w- w- were titled as queen mothers. But were they uh, the next uh, the, the next kings or or the pr- the princes uh, in waiting? Is that how it worked? The same as in Europe? Yes, I mean, in in the say, let's take the matrilineal system of the Akan or in the Ashanti Kingdom, for example. Yes, P- uh, inheritance and succession pass through the female line, but the inheritors and the successors tended mm-hmm. to be men. So it wasn't the it wasn't the sons, the biological sons of the king, who would inherit the kingdom. It was the sons of his sister. Hmm. Uh, and so, um, so that was important. So, and, and at the point of succession, as in all human history, uh, everywhere in the world, uh, was an absolutely crucial moment. And one, one issue that a number of our contributors in the book write about were, were the problems of succession in many African kingdoms, which did not have the custom of primogeniture, in other words, the the simple matter of the eldest son inheriting the kingdom. There was usually a wide range of successors um, who were eligible uh, to uh, to succeed, and this often caused succession disputes and sometimes breaking out into prolonged open conflict. So in the Kingdom of Congo, for example, in Central Africa, uh, Cecile Fromont writes about uh, how uh, these succession conflicts um, uh, were uh, were an important dynamic of of dynastic history, and, and I also write about it in terms of the Buganda Kingdom too. My guest on today's London Lopez at Large is John Parker, who is both the editor and one of the contributors to a book called Great Kingdoms of Africa, published by the University of California Press. This is Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You you uh, have written about the Asante. Um, did most of these uh, monarchies display their sacred royal power with public ceremonies uh, like the West African kingdoms of the of Ashanti and Dahomey, or did some hide them away? For example, the Yoruba kings, who even concealed their faces. 
Yes, both. I mean, th- th- this is this is a very interesting um, example of the different ways that power was created uh, and was and was displayed or performed. Um, in some uh, kingdoms, we see the the very public uh, display of power, particularly in yearly uh, harvest ceremonies or ceremonies of renewal uh, in which the, the, the general populace uh, celebrated dynastic power and dynastic power was, was ritually reinvigorated uh, for the next year. Hmm. In other examples, we see um, dynastic power hidden away and the, the Yoruba Kingdoms is a very good example of that, uh, exemplified physically by the fact that the Yoruba kings wore a wore a crown with a beaded veil, and they they very rarely showed their faces in public. It goes back to the point we were talking about before, Leonard, about the the unusual nature of kingly power. Kings are kind of, in a way, sacred monsters. They transcend and are above the normal rules of society. They do odd things, or at least they, even if they don't do odd things, they they uh, they make out they can do them does to the sort of set king, them apart from ordinary people. Does the first king become the king because he has seized power, or uh, does he become king by mutual agreement with the, of the, the, the other people uh, surrounding him? Um, either... Either could happen and has happened in many examples uh, across African history. Um, kings were often strangers. This is a very interesting uh, facet of African history, and we see it in other parts of the world too. Dynasties are often remembered in the oral traditions as coming from somewhere else. In Central Africa, there's many, many oral traditions of kings uh, crossing a river in primordial times, usually from the east, and bringing a more sophisticated civilization with them, and in some way inserting or insinuating their way into uh, into a more um, a, 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 a more um, a lesser developed society, and and making it more sophisticated and instigating uh, sacred kingship. In other cases, like in Ashanti, for example. The kings were not like that. They see themselves as indigenous people who came either down from the sky on golden chains or uh. up from holes in the ground. And the the meaning of these oral traditions is that they came from nowhere else, that they were the autochthonous people who were the first masters and mistresses of the land. So again, this the picture varies. And again, we need to be careful you know, not to essentialize an African kingdom is this, African kings do this, because we see a whole range of different sort of cultural dynamics coming into play in different parts of, of this huge continent. Well, if they appear from out of the sky or from the ground, they still have to have the, uh, the people of the area believe in them as the one who should be their new leader. Yes, that's right. And here... here- we see the idea of consent uh, so important uh, in in distinction to the idea of coercion. Military power, coercive power, force, or at least the threat of those things can be mobilized, of course, by rulers, often tyrannical rulers, to impose power over people. But in the long term, that doesn't usually work. Mm. Rulers have to show that they can provide their people with certain things, well-being, health, fertility, food, culture. So kings have to show that they are the givers and the preservers of these deep and important cultural uh, and economic uh, factors. And only then do we see uh, the notion of legitimacy emerging. So kings need to forge legitimacy. So they need the consent of the people uh, they rule. And so the ways in which kings in Africa have have done this, and, and they've often done it in highly sophisticated ways that may surprise people who know more about European history, say, than African history. African kings were often great performers of power. 
these great yearly rituals that 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 um, displayed wealth and power and reforged legitimacy were 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 often spectacular um, um, events and, and uh, involved people in, in in power in ways they wouldn't normally be and so so this 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 is an important theme that we we try to write about in the book. Does the traditional kingship that continues to exist within many present-day African nations preserve ancient cultural ideas about identity and power? Is that one of the reasons why? Yes, very much so. I mean, this book is about the history of Africa before the coming of European colonial rule. So the chapters tend to come to a conclusion in the 19th century uh, only briefly touching on the ongoing importance of kingship. But you're absolutely right. To that, shape that, 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 yes. throughout the 20th century and even to the yes, day. I mean the 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 um, the importance of these king kingships and forms of 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 uh, rule continues in contemporary Africa within the 50 or more uh, nation states that make up Africa today that were, of course, in many ways, cr- the creation of the, the period of European colonial conquest and mm. and subjugation. So the sovereignty of nearly all African um, kingdoms has been extinguished and was extinguished largely by colonial rule and continued to be so by uh, post-colonial uh, African states. But within those states, kingdoms still exist and continue to be very important. And as you say, I think that's the crucial thing. These ancient kingdoms in the shape that they have continued and continue to preserve often a sort of deeper well of ideas of identity, of belonging, of community, of, of ritual power, of, of, of the sacred realm. And it's here that these kingdoms continue to, to resonate today. What role does language play in this equation? Um, I spoke to somebody from Guinea who told me that um, the neighboring people spoke a language that his people didn't understand, that it was only the... Uh, the lingua franca of the European uh, country that, in the ca- this case France, that had colonized the area, that uh, allowed everybody to communicate. It could just as easily have been a Middle Eastern country, for example. But um, the, the people have to speak two languages, don't they? Yes, I mean throughout its history, um, African Africa and the civilizations in it have often been. Uh, multilingual and ordinary African people still today often have extraordinary uh, language skills because many people speak two, three, four, five, even more languages. Uh, the the one, con- the one one country, for example, Nigeria, in uh, Africa's most populous nation, uh, over three hundred languages are spoken in that one country. And and overlay overlaying those uh, indigenous African languages, of course, are the languages of uh, colonial power. So uh, French England, continues right? to still to be important. Mm-hmm. English, Portuguese in the ex-Portuguese mm-hmm. colonies, and then you've also, of course, got Arabic-speaking uh, North Africa. So the language map of Africa is complex but crucial in understanding its deep past because language as you suggest has played a role a key role in in people's identities how they see themselves and how they come together in different political units so is there an insistence on people speaking both the local language i don't want i'm afraid to say tribal because uh you objected to the use of that word earlier <laughs> But uh, um, it, yes, I mean, we uh, well, I mean, it, it, sorry, can we call it tribal? Um, it's a word I wouldn't use. I think you 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 detected my my uh, my lack of ease when you used it. It's a very common word, but it's a problematic one. Tribe tends to be a word of uh, European imperialism. 
uh, going right back to the um, the ancient Mediterranean, the classical um, civilizations of the Mediterranean, just to the north of Africa, uh, tribes were seen to be people who who were not civilized enough to live in kingdoms and states. They were decentralized barbarians. The Greeks talked about barbarians in that way. That word is a Greek word. The Romans talked about the North African tribes in that way. And centuries later, European colonizers in the age of imperialism uh, perceived Africa to be a continent made up of not of kingdoms, but largely of tribal peoples. And they were quite wrong about that. Africans, like people in other parts of the world, tend to have multiple identities. And what we sort of think of as a tribal identity or an ethnic identity to use a more neutral and less value-laden term was just one of many uh, identities people had, language being one, uh, family and kinship being others, but also membership of particular uh, uh, political units like kingdoms being another. So I think there's a problem in sort of in, in with this term, and it does have to be used with caution. And, and academics uh, tend to write about it, you know, very much in inverted commas and and um, and to to, to problematise what it's meant over time. Should I see parallels between what might I know about in this country? For example, a New Yorker uh, from a certain neighbourhood having a sense, a certain sensibility. Uh, as opposed to somebody from another state and then uh, somebody who's running the country in Washington. Well, I believe you grew up in Brooklyn, Leonard, so you can speak with some authority about the identities of the five boroughs over time very well. well. Even the areas of Brooklyn. Even the areas of Brooklyn. So that's absolutely right. So then you've got different parts of Brooklyn. So the the comparison is a valid one. identities work at all sorts of different levels, don't they? And they um, they are mobilized in particular, in particular contexts in different ways. If you're talking to someone from Oregon, just being from New York is enough. But if you're from New York and you say, well, I'm from New York, it doesn't mean anything. No. Where are you from in New York? So African identities worked in the same way. They were complex, fluid, and multiple. And so, um, so the book is focused on kingdoms, but of course, and and that they shape one form of identity. Larger empires, like the empires of Ghana, Mali, and Songo in the medieval period of, uh, in West Africa, of course, were multi, were large, expansive, multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic empires, which, which encompassed speakers of many different languages and people with many different identities. So, um, so again, uh, you know, the, the historic specifics, teasing out these differences between different regions is crucial. Do some of these uh, monarchies continue to, to be absolute monarchies? Or has uh, uh, absolute monarchy waned in Africa as it has elsewhere in the world? It's almost completely gone. Africa has one absolute monarchy, and that is Eswatini, uh, which used to be called Swaziland, which changed it. The king of Swaziland changed the name to the more linguistically correct um, Eswatini in the Swazi language um, a few years ago. Morocco was more or less an absolute monarchy since independence from France and Spain in 1956, but um, the as a result of the um, protests of the Arab Spring from 2011, the King of Morocco, Mohammed VI, was forced to make certain concessions, uh, which watered down his autocratic power. But um, these are the last vestiges of absolute monarchy in, in the continent. There's very few left in other parts of the world, mainly in the Arabian Peninsula, places like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Oman, and just a few other places can be called absolute monarchies. Uh, more common are constitutional monarchies like Japan or Great Britain or the Scandinavian countries, for example, that that have that still retain a king uh, as 
as head of state. And we see a similar sort of thing going on in Africa where um, within contemporary African states, there's often many ancient monarchies and the kings there continue to hold that same sort of position as uh, as these constitutional monarchs that we're, we're, we're more used to, that they, again, to come back to this point, they're the, they're the, they represent a deeper history and a deeper culture that that, that in some ways transcends um, contemporary um, state power. Well, what role does religion play in all of this? Does it matter whether we're talking about Muslims or uh, Christians or people who've held on to the ancient religions of the area? That's a very important question, uh, Leonard, and it's, it's, it's a key theme of, of, of the book. Religion, or the sacred realm, if you like, um, is absolutely, has been absolutely crucial to the functioning of political power. And, and many of the contributors to the book make this point very powerfully. Um, first of all, forms of indigenous African belief, but quite early on, also, the global religions of first Christianity and then Islam. The first people to convert to Christianity beyond uh, the region of Israel, Palestine, where it emerged, were, of course, uh, Egyptians uh, in Alexandria within just a century or so of the death of Christ. And then with a few centuries after that, um, Christianity was uh, firmly established not only in Egypt, but also in the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia. Uh, and the we have a chapter in the book that, that looks very specifically at the way Christianity has become entangled with uh, kingship in uh, Ethiopia over almost 2,000 years. Then we see the coming of Islam uh, from the uh, 7th and 8th century in the, in the Christian calendar. And Islam would also have a profound impact on the, the nature of state building in the, the northern third of the continent, not only north of the Sahara, but also in the, the great states of West Africa that I mentioned and other regions too. So religion was important because the mastery of the sacred realm was an absolutely fundamental aspect of what we've called this creative forms of power. Uh, and that's continued to be the case in different ways uh, in all the regions of the continent. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with John Parker. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Great Kingdoms of Africa. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's given the number to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. And we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at large. On the other hand, if you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more or make a $100 contribution to WBAI, you can receive, uh, as part of our celebration of Women's History Month, the Women's History Collection is our gift to you. It's a 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949 that have been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. Uh, to get that, ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950, or in this case, go online to women.wbai.org to become a WBAI buddy uh, with London Lopate at Large as your favorite show. And we return now to John Parker, who's a senior lecturer in the history of Africa at the University of London, uh, author of a number of books about Africa, and a contributor to the book that he has edited that we're discussing, Great 
Kingdoms of Africa, uh, published by University of California Press, uh, with contributions from a number of different uh, experts. Um, uh, now, let's. I should also point out that there are some wonderful illustrations in it. Uh, did you feel that it was important to include those pictures to um, help us understand what you're writing about here? Yes, I, I was thrilled with the opportunity to work um, with the uh, uh, with Thames and Hudson, who published the book uh, in parallel to the University of California Press edition and, and is identical to it here in London. Uh, it's the first um, trade book I've uh, edited or written, meaning a book for the uh, the general public that's not published by an academic press. Mm. And um, so I've never had color plates in a book before. So as a historian, I was absolutely thrilled. And I think the inclusion of the color plates accompanied by black and white um, illustrations in the text uh, really enhance some of the arguments that are are made in the book. Um, we, we, one of the arguments we try to make is, is that art history is increasingly uh, becoming an important uh, discipline in understanding the African past. And rather than being separate from what regular historians like me do, there's a real dialogue emerging between us and our art historian colleagues. And in fact, one of the contributors, Cecile Formont, who writes on the Congo Kingdom, uh, is, a, is an out-and-out -out art historian and, and writes uh, wonderfully, I think, about the importance of art uh, in the uh, functioning of political power in the, in the Congo Kingdom of Central Africa. Can't we say that art was uh, important in all of these areas um, because it uh, was about the gods and it was also often about the monarch? Yes. And of course, we're not talking just about plastic art, uh, sculpture, mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, painting that, that, that we usually associate with art. We're talking about artistic production uh, more broadly, which would include music, of course, dance, uh, the oral recitation of history. Most famously, of course, amongst the the, the the griot of West Africa who tell the story of the great state builder Sunjata of Mali uh, from the 13th century and have preserved those histories down uh, to the present day. So all of these various forms of, uh, of material culture and artistic production have been important in the way that uh, kingship has functioned over time. Well, you mentioned earlier the uh, the essay by the British archaeologist David Wengrow, who wrote about ancient Egypt and Nubia. Uh, but we didn't bring up the role of the building of the pyramids in that story. No. Um, Was, that's, of the, course, the, well known. The great age of pyramid building... Um, in the uh, the third dynasty or the the middle of the uh, the the about the middle of the uh, third uh, millennium uh, BCE, of course, is one of the most iconic features of the human past and of the African past in particular. Um, Wengro touches on that, but I think interestingly he doesn't dwell on it. As I said before, the the remit of the authors was to was to engage with with new ideas to not just to sort of tell people again what you know the mm -hmm. the what's known about the african past but to really to to wrestle with the ways in which academics are, are taking the field and to present that to a general audience in an accessible way so rather than dwelling on the pyramids that we all know well Wengro writes uh, more about this dialogue between the different parts of the Nile Valley and goes back well before the, the Great Pyramid Age into the millennium or so before that to look at the very early origins of kingship in Nubia or Kush and in Egypt. Rahmana Idrisa, 
of the African Studies Center of Leiden University in the Netherlands wrote about the Sudanic empires of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. Uh, They're on the other side of Africa from Egypt. How different were they? Uh, uh, And what, what about the nature of their monarchies? The sequence of these three great trading kingdoms, first of all Ghana, then Mali, and then Songo, stretching over the best part of a thousand years, as uh, Romani writes, is one of the best known aspects of African history. And um, it's of crucial importance because these were not just small um Kingdoms. These were kingdoms that expanded out into imperial systems, and one thing that distinguishes them was that they they all brokered trade across the Sahara Desert between North Africa on the one hand and between um, the, the West Africa to their south, and the main commodity that they brokered uh, was gold. And, and so what some of your listeners might not be aware of is that much of the gold used in the Mediterranean world, both in, the, uh, in Christian Western Europe and in the, in the world of the empires of Islam in North Africa stretching right through the Middle East to Central Asia, uh, the, the, the gold used for coinage and, and, and the storage of wealth came from West Africa and was traded through these empires. And it was that that underpinned their, um, their political power and, and, and fueled their great reach. And so that's a very, um, a very important uh, part of, of the, the past of that part of the continent. And then Habtamu, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing these names, Habtamu Tigeni of Rutgers and Wendy Belcher of Princeton wrote about the Solomonic Christian Kingdom of Ethiopia. Hasn't the Northeast Kingdom of of Ethiopia been the dominant power in the Horn of Africa and the Western Red Sea for much of the past 3,000 years? Uh, It's where the oldest human fossils have been found. Yes, Ethiopia is a really iconic part of the continent. And I think it's iconic for a number of reasons. One is that it has been uh, a Christian kingdom uh, for almost 2,000 years now. Mm. Uh, At least it was until the overthrow of the last emperor of, of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, in 1974. But the memory of that history continues to profoundly shape uh, Ethiopia and and neighboring Eritrea today. So the fact Ethiopia was Christian uh, gave it a real profile globally. And that profile continued on well into the 20th century where Ethiopia and the term was often used in the biblical sense to mean the continent as a whole was seen by by. African people uh, in the in the African diaspora, particularly in the United States, as being a real symbol of um, of African history and of Black power. Hmm. Well, and one of the uh, seven... another reason for that, of course, is that Ethiopia was was the only kingdom to successfully fight off European conquest at the end of the 19th century and retain its independence when it famously defeated an invading Italian army in 1896. And so Ethiopia was, was, has become a real symbol of, um, of independent African power. And of course, one manifestation of that is the emergence of the Rastafarian religion uh, in Jamaica in the early to mid 20th century, which took Haile Selassie to be uh, a, a deified African god, or a deified African king, I should say, who had godlike attributes. Now, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, I do want to mention that uh, Olotunji Ojo wrote about the Aruba and the Benin kingdoms, uh, what is now the southwestern area of Nigeria. Art historian Cecile Fromont a uh, professor of African and South Atlantic art at Yale wrote about the Congo Kingdom, 
although I'm not exactly sure where that was located. Uh, Mohammed Mustafa Guadabe, a professor of political history at uh, Amadou Bello University in Zaria, Nigeria, wrote about the time from the Hausa Kingdoms to the Sokuto Caliphate. Wayne Dooling, a lecturer in African history at the University of London, wrote about the Zulu Kingdom. And you've contributed essays about Buganda and the Akan Forest of Ashante. Uh, is Buganda now the country of Uganda? Um, not exactly. Uh, bu- the, the kingdom of Buganda gave its name to the uh, contemporary country of Uganda and has in many ways dominated it uh, since it was incorporated into the what was the British colony of Uganda at the end of the 19th century. So it's one of the few examples on the continent where uh, an existing African kingdom uh, gave its name to a larger entity. Congo uh, would be another. There's actually two uh, nations, uh, Congo, the Republic of Congo and the Democratic Republic of Congo. So Congo is at the mouth of the Great Congo River in West Central Africa that um, Cecile writes about. But the 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 variety of of our authors uh, i think speaks to the moment because my imperative as the editor of this book was to uh was to give voice largely to up and coming younger african scholars including mm. people who were based on the continent um uh, to write about the regions uh, of which they are from and also they study and so the 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 diverse authorship i think is a is uh, is important um um at this historical juncture that so african up and coming younger scholars are getting to 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 reach out to a wider audience we've talked about uh the importance of religion and language what about skin color does that play a role in the story we're telling here? Um, if, if by skin color you mean notions of race... Well, some people but, are darker than others, and, and, and even the way people were... B- b- bodies look different from different parts of Africa, as they do from different parts of Europe, for example. Yes, I mean, uh, that, that, that's a, a very good point, because when outsiders have looked at Africa, particularly in the last few hundred years, they tend to equate it with particular sort of notion, European notions of race. That is to say, Africa in its essence is seen to be a black continent. Uh, to, uh, and so the, the, the term black Africa is often used to mean Africa south of the Sahara Desert to distinguish it from, uh, from different looking peoples uh, in North Africa. But the reality is, as you say, is that African peoples look different in all uh, uh, in in all parts you know across the continent and i think the the i think the way that africa has been racialized is 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 complex and in some in some ways problematic um north africa for example i take to be inherently a part of africa not as something separate from it uh, and I also think that African history extends to that of the people who were forcibly removed from Africa and their descendants, largely by the slave trades and particularly the transatlantic slave trade. So the existence of people of African heritage, uh, tens of millions of such people uh, in the Americas, both North and South, I think is a very important aspect of African history and is becoming increasingly integrated with that of the continent itself. I have to leave it there, unfortunately. I've been speaking with John Parker, Senior Lecturer in the History of Africa at the University of London. Uh, the, the book we've been discussing, Great Kingdoms of Africa, published by the University of California Press, with essays from David Wingro, Rahman Idrissa, Cecile Fromont, Alatonji Ojo, Abtamu Tegenye, and Wendy Laura Belcher, Mohamedou Mustafa Guadabe, and Wayne Dooling. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks so much, Leonard. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm thrilled to have been able to talk to uh, to you about the book. Thanks for inviting me. And that does bring us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program, I'd like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews. You can access 
our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We have been going through a rather rough time economically. We're not like uh, the BBC that John Parker listens to on a regular basis. Uh, Everyone in England has to pay a license fee. Here we ask our listeners, the, the ones who have the means to do so, to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with to call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI to uh, show their support to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. Uh, Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Great Kingdoms of Africa. So why not make that call right now? 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org and we hope you'll consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for 10, 15, 20 however many dollars a month that you feel comfortable doing it for as long as you want to do it it allows us to plan for the future and know that we're going to have uh, some income next month as well if you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more or make a $100 contribution to WBAI, uh, right now you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the early days of community radio broadcasting in 1949, culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. To get that, ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950 or go online to women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Lopate at Large as your favorite show. And I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on uh, listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this show... Um, and uh, well, why not let us know you appreciate what we do by going online to give to WBAI.org. Call 212-209-2950 and play a part in uh, keeping this historic station the only one on New York Radio Dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. 212-209-2950 or online, give to WBAI. And we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when Dana Sachs will discuss her book, All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers at the Heart of the Migrant Aid Crisis. Hope to see you then.